PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy Journal, and I am so delighted to share the June issue with you. I hope that those of you who have received it in the mail have it in front of you, and those who get it online have access to it. This is a really good issue, and I hope that there's something for everyone. Before I talk about the June issue, I'd like to talk a little bit about the conference that was just held in National Harbor in uh, the United States. It's called NEXT, N-E-X-T. It was an excellent, excellent conference. The purpose of this conference kind of moves away from sort of discipline-specific treatment and more to looking at issues that transcend specific specialties. It was really a good conference. And Alan Jetty was announced as the next editor-in-chief of physical therapy. There'll be an editorial about this in August, but it was amazing. People were so excited about the next editor-in-chief. He's going to take the journal to another completely new level. So stay tuned to our wonderful journal. Okay, now on to the June issue. I want to refer to the editorial because I think it will be really helpful particularly for investigators who are trying to decide whether or not their clinical trial should be registered. As some of you know, physical therapy was one of the first rehabilitation journals to require that randomized clinical trials be registered. And that announcement came out in 2008. So we're sort of part of a fabric of clinical trial registration. However, in recent years, there's been a change, and the change has been to broaden the number of trials that should be registered. For example, NIH decided that a clinical trial is one that prospectively assigns patients or participants to one or more interventions, and the outcomes are important. The evaluation of the intervention using health-related biomedical or behavioral outcomes are required. If that's your clinical trial, whether or not it's randomized, then it should be registered. And that's what this editorial says. The editorial also talks about a suggestion by the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors that trials that involve the interventionist, okay, so for example, if the clinician is given a new method of examination, and then one looks at the examiner's ability to pass a test, then that trial doesn't have to be registered. But if the clinician is given a new method of intervention and the success of that teaching is measured by patient outcomes, then that trial should be registered. So again, please look at the editorial if you have questions about what kinds of trials should be registered because with this editorial, we are changing our definition of a clinical trial. Thank you. I'm really excited that we are publishing, I believe, the first clinical guidance statement in our journal. A clinical guidance statement is also called a clinical practice appraisal. Some of you know when we look at SACIT, we talk about clinical practice guidelines as among sort of the top of the pyramid in that the clinical practice guidelines have been developed 
using the best evidence and there's a critical analysis of that evidence and oftentimes that involves systematic reviews to develop a clinical practice guideline. The title of the paper is Management of Falls in Community Dwelling Older Adults, Clinical Guidance Statement from the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy of the American Physical Therapy Association. This was put together by a subcommittee on evidence-based documents of the practice committee of the Academy. The committee members included Avon, Hankey, Kirk Sanchez, McDonough, Schubert, Hartage, and Hartley. What they did was they looked at the literature related to managing persons with a history of falls who lived in the community, so it's community-dwelling older adults. And rather than taking a first step of developing a clinical practice guideline, there were a number of clinical practice guidelines that they found. Again, I encourage you to look at the paper because it talks about databases that are available for other clinical practice guidelines not developed by physical therapists but developed by other organizations. When this committee looked at the clinical practice guidelines, they identified five that they felt were appropriate, and then of those five, they decided that three were really reasonable. So what they did was they looked at the recommendations from these three clinical practice guidelines and decided which were appropriate and which weren't and develop a clinical guidance statement. So I really encourage you to look at this. It is extremely thoughtful. It will really help clinicians who are wondering how to manage, how to screen, what tools to use in looking at persons with a fall history. And I really thank the Academy for publishing this in PTJ. The next paper is entitled, How Strongly is Aerobic Capacity Correlated with Walking Speed and Distance After Stroke? Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of the Literature. The first author is Jacqueline Outermans and her colleagues who come from a variety of institutions in the Netherlands, including the research group Lifestyle and Health at Hogeschool Utrecht, which is in the University of Applied Science in Utrecht, the Netherlands, Bravant, Breda, the Netherlands, VU University Medical Center in Amsterdam, and finally, Department of Neurorehabilitation, Center of Rehabilitation and Rheumatology, Rayada, Amsterdam. This is a really interesting paper. In recent years, I think those of you who have worked with neuromuscular conditions, and particularly stroke, have heard that post-stroke, not only is there the residual associated with the injury to the CNS, but there's also deconditioning, and the deconditioning may have been present before the stroke, but certainly because of inactivity after the stroke, deconditioning happens as well. So there's been interest in increasing aerobic capacity in persons post-stroke. And this ties in nicely in some cases with putting persons on the treadmill to try to change gait patterns, for example, so that you sort of can gain two aspects. You can work on gait at the same time as working on aerobic capacity. So there's a lot of discussion about endurance in the person's post-stroke. These investigators were interested in looking at the literature to see whether there's a correlation between aerobic capacity, walking speed, and walking distance after stroke. So if you're more fit, do you walk faster and do you walk further? Those are the questions. 
So what they did was they looked into the literature and they really were interested in VO2 peak because uh, in many cases it's considered a risk to do a VO2 max and a walking capacity. They identified a total of 13 studies that included 454 participants. Basically, I'm going to give you the correlations because I think that will help. And so when they looked at the relationship between VO2 peak and walking speed, the R-squared was approximately 18%, which means that about 18% of the variance between those two variables is accounted for by this relationship. When they looked at VO2 peak and walking distance, it was a bit stronger. It was more of a moderate correlation with an R-squared of about 27%. So right away, I think those of you who are comfortable with statistics see that this is not a powerful correlation between aerobic capacity, speed, and distance. So what the authors really talked about was that there are other factors so that there's nothing wrong with increasing aerobic capacity, but the expectation that aerobic capacity was going to have a large impact on walking speed or walking distance does not appear to be supported in the current literature. The next two papers are companion papers. The first is entitled Examining the Relationship Between Medical Diagnosis and Patterns of Performance on the Modified Dynamic Gait Index by Matsuda and colleagues. The second paper is investigating the validity of the environmental framework underlying the original and modified dynamic gait index. This is led by Ann Shumway-Cook and colleagues. The investigators are all Department of Rehabilitation Medicine, the Division of Physical Therapy, and the College of Education, the University of Washington in Seattle. These are great papers for people who are interested, should become interested, or currently use either the dynamic aid index or the modified dynamic aid index. There's a large sample that was used to address the questions in these two papers. And again, I'm going to be very superficial and encourage you to read them because one of the authors is Ann Shumway-Cook. And for those of you who know her, she's not only an excellent investigator, she's also a wonderful teacher. So when you read these papers, the relevance of these findings are really brought home to the reader. So I hope you enjoy it. As you may know, the dynamic gait index, or the modified, was developed to look at mobility performance, specifically the ability to adapt gait to complex kinds of environments or use gait for complex tasks. So this has just been an amazing task. My experience is that I used to do gait speed, so I'd use a stopwatch or a mat to look primarily at gait speed. And that's nice for some circumstances, but if you really want to know if the person's able to use locomotion across a variety of terrains, to turn, to maintain walking while talking, then a more specific kind of a test was needed to be developed, and that's the dynamic gait index. And so the purpose of the first paper was twofold. The first purpose was to see whether the modified DGI could be used across a variety of patient samples rather than tailored to individual patient types. So I think one of the articles in the literature by Marchetti and Whitney, for example, suggested using just four items of the original dynamic gait index for persons who had vestibular pathology. 
what Masuda and the team wanted to do was find out whether the test had to be tailored for specific medical diagnoses. The groups that they included were vestibular dysfunction, gait abnormality, traumatic brain injury, and Parkinson's disease, as well as age-controlled older adults. Basically, what they concluded for the first purpose of the paper was that, for example, vestibular pathology do worse on some of the items like vertical or horizontal head turning or pivot turn. There are medical diagnostic categories in which other types of patients also do poorly on those particular tasks, suggesting that those tasks are not vestibular specific. So they really emphasize the use of this tool across medical diagnostic categories at this point. The other thing that they wanted to do was try to map the dynamic gait index onto the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services new reporting system. So many of you know that there was an attempt by CMS to improve documentation particularly related to function. So you've heard of the G codes, which are categories of function. The other thing that has been developed by CMS are severity modifiers. And these severity modifiers characterize performance across 0 to 100% and in seven different categories. So if you look at this paper and particularly look at the figure in Table 4, you'll see their attempt to map the severity modifiers from CMS onto the scores for the MDGI. I think this is a great preliminary beginning and encourage you to explore it, to think about it. I really appreciate their thoughtfulness. The second paper begins to investigate the theoretical assumptions that underlie the DGI or the modified DGI. Anne Shumway-Cook and Aftap Patla came up with a description of sort of eight features of the relationship between the person and the environment related to mobility. The underlying framework for the DGI and the modified DGI incorporated four of these external features. And so what they wanted to do was find out whether the items on the test mapped onto the theoretical basis. And again, please, please, please read this paper because it's so thoughtfully written and the discussion and implications for the clinic are really valuable. So basically, when they did the analysis, which is incredibly complex, but again, well described, they found out that there was some support for the environmental framework, but it wasn't as clean as they expected. So yes, the DGI or the modified DGI is really good at looking at preparing a person for moving around in the environment beyond the clinic, but it's not one-to-one relationship. So I think in summary, what I loved about both these papers is, first of all, they continue to investigate the utility of the MDGI. They're talking about establishing meaningful clinical difference on the test, looking at thresholds. And they really talk about how you should use an instrument. So the instrument isn't just to give you a score. The instrument allows you to look at the person's mobility limitations and based on those mobility limitations, begin to do your intervention and then do the test and see whether the score changes. The next paper is entitled Factors Contributing to 50-Foot Walking Speed and Observed Ethnic Differences in Older Community Dwelling 
Mexican Americans, and European Americans. This paper is written by Myla Quibben and Helen Hasuda, who come from the Department of Physical Therapy, University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas, and the Department of Medicine, Division of Nephrology, University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas. Many of you know that there's been a real push to make gait speed as another vital sign because it has been related to function, future health status, and mortality, so particularly in older adults. So gait speed is simple to do, 50-foot walking speed using a stopwatch. You get a number, and then you look at a reference standard. When I went to PT school, I was taught that the average walking speed for adults is 1.25 meters per second. And the question is, based on what? So these authors were really very interested in seeing whether there was a difference between persons who are Mexican-American and European-American. And it was a large sample of more than 700, in fact, 703 individuals who were 65 years or older. Looking at the unadjusted mean, the Mexican-Americans had a gait speed of 1.17 and the European-Americans had a gait speed of 1.29. So what does this mean? Does this mean that Mexican-Americans are genetically predisposed to walk more slowly? Are there factors that can be modified? Does it mean that there's something wrong? So those are the kinds of questions that they asked. And they looked at this large sample. They looked at variables that could be modified and variables that were not modifiable. So, for example, there are differences in lower extremity strength and range of motion, BMI. Those are modifiable and may increase gait speed. When they took all of these contextual variables and included them, they found that there was no difference in an adjusted mean between the two groups. So I think this is, again, a really very useful clinical paper for those of you who are treating people who are of Mexican origin. I think, you know, 1.25 may not be their norm. The next paper is entitled Reported Characteristics of Participants in Physical Therapy-Related Clinical Trials. The authors are... Julie Chavan and Esther Haskovitz. They are from the Department of Physical Therapy, Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts, and the Department of Physical Therapy, the Sage Colleges in Troy, New York. And this picks up on the theme of the last paper in a sense because these authors were interested in seeing how clearly we describe both the sociodemographic and the anthropomorphic variables in our samples. Again, if you think about it, if you read a study and the study is a really exciting intervention, for example, on low back pain, but the persons are all 25 years old in acute back pain and they're all of Mexican origin and they're all occupied with heavy-duty labor, that result may not apply to your patients. So very, very specific, narrow samples may not be generalizable. At the same time, really ungeneralizable studies may not be relevant either. So it's important to have as much detail as possible. And so what the authors did was they explored physical therapy, our journal, and they looked at a random sample of 85 clinical trials from our journal. And then they also looked at the Physiotherapy Evidence Database, or PEDRO. This is a database that claims to house 
all the intervention trials that have been done in physical therapy. So it's a very large database. So they looked at the sample and basically, guess what? As you would expect, we don't do a very good job describing either the socio-demographic or the anthropometric variables. And so I think we need some work. And I think this is a really good call to us as editors, reviewers, and scientists to really include as much detail as possible about the patient population. And when conducting a study or designing a study, to consider the importance of generalizability. The next paper is entitled, Tension of the Ulnar, Median, and Radial Nerves During Ulnar Nerve Neurodynamic Testing, Observational Cadaveric Study. The authors are Nicole Manville and colleagues from the Discipline of Physiotherapy at the University of Newcastle in Callaghan, New South Wales, Australia, and the Discipline of Physiotherapy, Australian Catholic University, North Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. I am so delighted to see this paper in our journal. I think it is really interesting. Now, all of my friends and colleagues know that there is no way that I can do a neurodynamic testing of the upper extremity, but I certainly have watched our students here at Arcadia practice these tests. And so, again, I'm not going to even presume to tell you what the results are, but the authors were really interested in determining whether the test known as the ULNT3, whether the upper limb positioning for the test is the best to stress the ulnar nerve and not the median and radial nerve so that if a person reports neuropathic pain, one is attempting to isolate which nerve is associated with that pain. And so you want this positioning to be such that the ulnar nerve is stressed, but the radial and the median nerves are not stressed. So they looked at the current used positions, and they also talked about using a position that they felt more adequately stressed the upper extremity. So I need my musculoskeletal colleagues to give input related to what they said. What I found really interesting is they talked about horizontal abduction, which I had never heard of. So horizontal abduction is defined as movement of the humerus posteriorly in the transverse plane with the shoulder abducted to approximately 90 degrees. They have a great figure to show you the various positions that are preferred. Bottom line is, yes, one can use the current ULNT3, particularly if you supinate rather than pronate the arm, but they propose a method that stresses it even more. So I thank the authors for this interesting paper. The next paper is entitled Further Development and Validation of the Affordances in the Home Environment for Motor Development Infant Scale. And this is called the AHEMDIS. The authors are Priscilla Casola and her colleagues who come from the Motor Cognition Lab, Department of Kinesiology, University of Texas at Arlington in Arlington, Texas, the Child Motor Development Lab, Department of Health and Kinesiology, Texas A&M University, College Station, Texas, and the School of Nature Sciences and School of Health Sciences, Methodist University of Piraceba, Piraceba, Sao Paulo, Brazil. For those of you who have pediatric interest, you probably already know about this test and what it's trying to do. And again, I apologize if I oversimplify it. 
But basically, we all know that development of infant motor behavior can be enriched with the type of environment to which the child is exposed. And so when we talk about what the environment is, one of the aspects of the environment are the affordances. And affordances are basically opportunities that offer the child the potential for motor action. So not only do you live in a beautiful place, but also that you have the opportunity to interact with objects in the environment to learn. And so these authors and others have tested a tool that looks at the affordances in the home environment for motor development for children who are 18 to 42 months of age. This is a self-report parental survey that's done. However, the concern of the authors was that there's not a test available to look at infants. And so the purpose of this test was to begin to develop and test the reliability, validity of a test that looks at infants less than 18 months of age. And so this is the beginning of their development and validation of the infant scale. And I thank them for including it in our journal. The next paper is a perspective, and it's entitled Power and Promise of Narrative for Advancing Physical Therapist Education and Practice. The authors include Bruce Greenfield and his colleagues who come from across the country, the Division of Physical Therapy, Rehab Medicine at Emory University, the Department of Physical Therapy at Creighton University in Nebraska, School of Health Sciences, University of Melbourne in Australia, Department of Physical Therapy, Central Michigan University in Michigan, and finally, the Department of Physical Therapy, MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. This is, as usual from this group, a really, really very thoughtful paper. I really encourage you to look at this because basically what the authors are suggesting is how important it is for entry-level students, novice clinicians, to write narratives because they believe that it helps develop critical reflection and lead to expert practice. This perspective is so thoughtful. It includes examples. Um, it includes suggestions of ways to develop this technique as a teaching tool. And it's not really long, so I really encourage you to look to this perspective. It's very, very thoughtful. The final paper in the June issue is one of the Knowledge Translation and Implementation Special Series papers. This is a case report, and it is entitled Development and Evaluation of Self-Management and Task-Oriented Approach to Rehabilitation Training in the Home. The authors are Julie Richardson and her colleagues. They come from the School of Rehabilitation Science, McMaster University, Ontario, Canada, Department of Physiotherapy, St. John's Healthcare, Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and finally, Toronto Rehabilitation Institute, University Health Network, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. This is a great paper because we all argue, we all stress about how to take what's in the literature and put it into practice. And that was the whole purpose of the Knowledge Translation Implementation Special Series that was extremely well received by our readers. This is a very practical application. So let's take the example of patients post-stroke who are medically stable and want to go home for their rehab. 
what is the evidence for what the best intervention should be? Who is the team that should be assembled in the home to provide care? So those are the kinds of questions that the authors went to the literature. Actually, they spoke to experts about. And then the question is, okay, now we have an intervention. How do we ensure that clinicians know about this intervention? How do we evaluate the success of this intervention? Not only the therapist's comfort with the intervention, but also patient outcomes. And so that's basically what this final case report is. It is just a beautiful example of applying evidence to clinical practice and assessing whether or not it was successful. They use a knowledge to action cycle. It's a really nice description in Figure 1 for those of you who are interested in trying to change practice where you are. It's just a great way to end that special series and also to end the June issue. So I hope you have a wonderful June. I'm going to go out this weekend and pick sour cherries. So I hope you're all doing something wonderful this weekend, and I look forward to seeing you in July. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.